Well, good morning, and uh, indeed we are uh, talking today about life in harmony. Uh, next Sunday, we get into Romans 8 as we continue our series in Romans, and uh, it's a chapter in some ways I've waited my whole life to preach, can't wait for it, so we'll be doing that next week. Today, uh, we're doing, uh, addressing something that I decided to do months ago, and I, I decided to do it on this Sunday because we have a little cluster of holiday and, and sort of remembrances, so we have Sanctity of Life Sunday was was recently. We have Martin Luther King Jr. birthday. This is Black History Month. And so we got a little cluster of similar sort of themes that I felt like we should just sort of utilize and address this subject of the value of human life. What I didn't know months ago was what was going to happen over the last two weeks. So a week and a half ago, the legislature in New York, signed by the governor, established a new law in New York where abortion is now legal up to the moment of birth. Like, literally, the child about to come out, they still can abort that child. This was celebrated, of course, and lots of cheering and clapping. They even lit up uh, the, world, the new World Trade Center in pink uh, to celebrate it. This last week, what has been in the news has been not New York, but Virginia, where in Virginia they uh, attempted a similar legislation, and uh, because of some of the uproar, there was a lot of explanation that was needing to happen, and so the governor of Virginia, himself a physician, got on a local ra uh, radio station and explained what the law meant and what the limits of the law were. And he explained that it would be possible for a woman to give birth to a child, for the child to be there on the birthing table, and for the physician and the mother to have a conversation about whether to keep the child or not. Now, he was kind enough to say they would keep the, uh, the infant comfortable while they had the conversation. Today's front page is that this same governor now is in trouble, not for that, but for racial things that have come out of his past. All of this, an opportunity for the church, I think, to say, like, what does the Bible say about this, right? In a culture where increasingly we are detaching the value of human life from our government, from our education, and indeed from our religion, so we're talking about sanctity of human life, also talking today about race. And I don't need to tell you that race and racial uh, division and tensions have dominated really our country in some ways you could say for a couple hundred years, but the last couple years has been front page every single week is to this day as we continue to struggle with ethnic diversity, ancient sins of our country, and what it means to love our neighbor uh, no matter what his or her color is. Now, whether you know it or not, our church is already knee-deep in these issues. Uh, the, you know, for years, many, many years, our church has been uh, advocating for life primarily by resourcing uh, the Women's Center of Northwest Indiana. And we have been long-time partners with them, with volunteers and money, and I mean, of every dollar you give to this church, there's a little bit of it that goes to the Women's Center of Northwest Indiana, and we're thankful for that. 
A few years ago, a few years ago, we raised money and we helped the Women's Center establish the very first crisis pregnancy center in the history of the city of Gary. I have a picture of it here. And to this day, they are there advocating for life. We're thankful for them. We also are a long ways down the path of, of, uh, of the racial challenge. Many years ago, I, I, we, we challenged the church and said, we're going to know that we're effectively evangelizing our community when our church looks like our community. And if you want to know what our community looks like, just go to the mall. Have you been to the mall? Then you know what I'm talking about. The mall is here in Northwest Indiana, a little picture of the nations of the world. You're gonna hear all kinds of languages, see all kinds of skin colors, because we live in a community that is uh, very racially diverse. And so we just made it simple, this is a simple statement. A church is reaching its community when it looks like its community. How much do we look like our community? And out of that then came uh, initiatives that we called Mission Them. Some of you were here back then. Mission Them, and Mission Them was basically saying, hey, let's be a church of outward arrows, not inward arrows, outward arrows. Let's think about what does it mean to be a church that gets into the community and is salt and light and represents Jesus in lots of different contexts in Northwest Indiana. And so we began to do that. Our, our multiple campus uh, ministry flowed out of Mission Them. We, this is one of four campuses of our church meeting for worship today. Uh, a lot of other ministries that flowed from that most, I think, vividly on the racial diversity issue is our Gary campus. We have a, we have a campus in downtown Gary, Fifth Avenue. I, I say it this way, I can hit a three-wood to uh, City Hall in Gary. It's like right down, that would be on a good day with the wind behind me. Um, but very close, right there in the hub of the city, and we've been doing that now for some years. And our, our, our uh, racial makeup at that campus, 60% African-American. 30% white, 10% Hispanic. And that ministry, maybe more than any of our other campuses, has been a huge learning curve for us as leaders, as pastors, elders. Uh, it's a curve that, I'm going to say lots of things you can clap about today, okay? And honestly, a few things we should cry about. But that has been a learning curve for us as a church and it's a curve that we continue on, and we have to continue on. We have a long way to go with this. Here's another example of this. Lord willing, within the next three months, we are going to begin Bethel Chinese Church here in Northwest Indiana. Mandarin, Mandarin-speaking congregation, and it looks like, I mean, we're just like, there's just one, one little hurdle or two yet, but it looks very likely that Easter Sunday, there's going to be a Bethel church worshiping Jesus in Mandarin. I never thought I would make a sentence like that. Like, I don't know where that came from. When I was in seminary, I never thought I would say that, but here's where God has led us to, and we're super excited about that. Okay, now you can clap. Indeed, that is worth clapping about. So we have a long way to go with this. I mean, we've come a ways, but we have a long ways to go with this. And I, today I'm saying, how are we going to continue on in this path? Like, how do we keep getting there? And the way that we get there is by reinforcing biblical truth that this church has believed for a long time and applying it faithfully to the context of our Jerusalem, this, this uh, community here in northwest Indiana. 
And what I'm going to say today is that we are called by God to love God's image everywhere. Everywhere that it's found, in the womb, out of the womb, in little people, in bigger people, in mature people, in old people, in coma people, in nursing home people, that we love God's image everywhere, and we solidly as a church know why we are doing that. So the title is, is Loving God's Image Everywhere. I may give this kind of message on this Sunday every year, and if I do, it may very well be entitled every single year, Loving God's Image Everywhere. So just get used to it, okay? Because I'm going to say it a lot in this message. Now let's begin by, why do we say that? Like, what's the biblical basis for our call to love God's image everywhere? Well, I would hope, first of all, that every Christian here would say amen to that this is something that we must do. This is in our consciences even, I think, in our culture. You don't have to be a Christian to recoil at Sandy Hook. There's something in our hearts that just kind of goes, oh, that's terrible. Or the mass murder in Las Vegas. A wanton killing of a guy with an automatic rifle shooting down on just people. Like, in our hearts, we just go, that's terrible. But do we know why that's terrible? Why does that matter? And why does it matter that a mother and a doctor would have a conversation about killing a newborn child? Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Here's Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The first chapter of the Bible tells us who God is, and therefore it then tells us who we are. We are made in the image of God. If you read through Genesis, that little principle is the basis for lots of the ethical laws that we find in the Old Testament. This is why murder is wrong, and, and a host of other things, because every single human being is made in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means this. It means that we are unique in creation. We are unique in the universe. God created lots of things other than human beings. So he created atoms and molecules, and he created oceans and rivers and mountains, and he created planets, and he created uh, solar systems and galaxies, and all of these things that he created. But there was something very unique that he endowed Adam and Eve and all of their descendants with, something that no other aspect of creation uh, had. We are made in the likeness of God. There's more, we have more in common with God than an entire galaxy has because God made us uniquely spiritual. He made us uniquely moral. He gave us a capacity to know him and to worship him on a kind of relational level that nothing else in all creation can do. We are unique in this. Now, all of creation reflects God's glory, Romans 1.18. But there's more in one human being of God than all the galaxies combined. Think of that. Every person here in this room, if we were to stare at you and stare at the galaxies, we could learn more about God by staring at you than we could a lifetime of staring at the galaxies. You are more like God than anything else in all the world. Now, that's the positive. The challenge is that the Bible says that we are morally accountable to God. That God is going to judge us in a way that he is not going to judge the tigers and the mosquitoes. Even though, in my opinion, mosquitoes should be judged. 
and condemned. <laughs> so therefore, here's the, here's the important thing to realize. Our value, we talk about being inherent, it, yes, but it is derived value. Our value is human, human life is valuable because it is derived from the value of our creator in whose likeness we were made. This is like parents with children. We, we love the images of our children because we love our children. And so I go to your houses and I see, you know, the walls of pictures of your kids and, you know, the shrines to your, to your children. And I think, wow, they love their kids a lot and maybe too much, actually. I don't know. I'm kidding with that. Please don't come to our house. <laughs> the shrine uh, that is known as our house. So the more we love our kids, the more we love pictures of our kids. The less we love our kids, the less we really care about pictures of our kids. If we don't love our kids at all, no pictures. The higher we see the worth of God, the more valuable his likeness is. If God is okay, then his likeness is kind of valuable. If there is no God, then there is nothing special about human life at all. And now you can have a conversation on the birthing table whether to keep this clump of cells or not. What happens in a society that doesn't highly value God, the value of his image is diminished. What happens in a society where huge portions of the society don't think that there is a God? Educate the children that all we do is live in a naturalistic society. There is no God. What happens in a society over a couple generations that denies the value and the worth of knowing God through his son Jesus Christ? What happens? We don't realize we're cutting off the limb behind ourselves because our whole value is derived from the glory of God. And that explains what's going on in our world around us and has for centuries. I hope it's obvious to you that that value is connected to every human race and ethnicity. It's not like some races bear God's image more than other races. No, we all fully, totally, completely bear the likeness of God. In fact, even science is showing this. The, the Genome Project and all the studies they have in DNA, and I'm really kind of, I'm, I'm over my head right now in talking about this, but as I understand it, they've done all of these studies and they've compared ethnicities around the world and they've come to the conclusion, we're, we're essentially the same. We are exactly the same all over the world. Human beings, genetically the same. The Bible comes along and says not only are we the same bearing the image of God, but we also all have the same problem. You're like, yeah, that's right, we need better food around here, or we need better government, or we need better schools, and all that's good. But our problem is not our government, our problem is not our schools, our problem is not the roads or taxes or whatever, our problem is sin. Amen. We all have the same problem. Romans, our series in Romans has taught us this. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, there's a saying, it's not in the Bible, but it should be, misery loves company. 
And if that is the case, we all ought to love one another because we're all in the same miserable condition. We're all like cancer patients in the cancer ward or family members of cancer patients who sit there in that waiting room and we look at each other with sympathetic eyes. Why? Because we're all going through the same thing. We're all dealing with the same problem. It's an astonishing thought, isn't it, to think that every single human being, every image bearer, is a soul that is going to spend eternity somewhere. Think, try to bring that to your mind when you're on the train to Chicago or the next time that you are you know, driving down I-80 in all these cars or at school in the lunchroom and just look around that room and think, every person here is going to spend trillions and trillions of years in either heaven or hell. I mean, it's a sobering reality. We're all under the same condemnation. We are all image bearers of God, accountable to the God that made us. We share the same problem. And by the way, wonderfully, we share the same solution. What is the solution? Here's where, again, Romans has unpacked this for us. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like this group of people needs one kind of savior and this people need some, another kind of savior or the rich need one kind or the poor need one kind or this color needs that or the big people need this and the little people. No, we all need the same thing. We all need Christ. And God has provided the same solution to every single image bearer no matter who they are. And that solution is a reconciliation with God by God sending his son Jesus Christ Think about this with me for a moment. Aren't you glad God's not a racist? Aren't you glad that God decided to move into our neighborhood and treat us like neighbors? I mean, no matter who you find in this world that's a different skin color or ethnicity than you, you have way more in common with that person than God has it with us. <laughs> like, God was not a racist. God loved people fundamentally different than him. In fact, we can say it this way, all the things that we wish were true in others is completely true in God. He didn't save us from a distance. You know, he didn't just, you know, throw in a, a Hail Mary Savior and, and stay sort of safe. No, he came. He came, became one of us. Jesus, to this day, is human. He is human with a body there at the right hand of God. God is no racist, and he came to save the whole human race. So if there is a symbol that should represent peace or reconciliation, it's not, it's not the U.S. Constitution, it's not the Bill of Rights, and it's not this thing or that. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. That stands out there like, like, a, like a, a monument to what mankind really needs. And you, by the way, today, what you need and what I need. We all have the same problem and we all have the same solution, and it is peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes. Now, first service, I was all getting all up on this, and it came to me, and I'm going to say it again. Somebody wrote it down for me because I asked him to. It's awesome to think that as Jesus hung on the cross, the guilt that he bore was multi-ethnic guilt. Yeah. He didn't just bear the guilt of the Jews. He didn't just bear the guilt of the Romans. He didn't just bear the guilt of Middle East people. He bore the guilt of every single skin color and ethnicity that has ever lived. 
He died a, a multi-ethnic redeeming death, bearing multi-ethnic sin, including racism, when he died on that cross. Same problem, same solution, same destiny. Listen to what Revelation says about where this whole thing is going. After this I looked, John now, this is a prophecy. God gives him a vision of what the future holds. After this I looked to behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the future for God's people. And what I want you to see in the text is that inspired by the Holy Spirit, John could have said, and there around the throne were all of God's people. But he didn't say that. And he could have said, around the throne was the church of Jesus Christ. But he didn't say that. He could have said, around the throne was, were, were, were Christians. But he didn't say that. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he noted that around the throne, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation on earth. That that picture of heaven is not monochromatic. It is, it is a diverse picture. It is a, a multi-ethnic, multi-culture, multilingual diversity, absolutely unified there around the throne. It is diversity in perfect unity, worshiping Christ on the throne. That's what he made clear. Now, did you know that there's diversity in hell too? There will be people in hell from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. But there will be no unity. There will be hate. There will be racism. Bitterness. Loneliness. But no unity. Unity is something that God establishes. We find this even in the story of the church at Pentecost, where people from all over are there and they hear the gospel in their own languages. God began with a heart for the nations. And over these centuries, as that gospel has gone literally around the world and people have come to believe and trust in Jesus from every tribe, tongue, and language, the church has expanded and the gospel has expanded. It will only be fulfilled when Christ himself is on the throne and the church is there glorified with him. And there, by the way, we are not going to be citizens of the United States or citizens of France or citizens of, of Brazil. We will be citizens of the kingdom of God. So I hope you realize, friend, that you have way more in common with a Chinese Christian or a Brazilian Christian than you have with an unbelieving fellow American. And it's not even close. There are no Americans in heaven. So, with that, I want to talk practically. How do, we, how do we love God's image everywhere? How do we do that? And I think that it has to begin with this first point. It has to begin with repentance. It has to begin with personal repentance of my failure 
to love God's image everywhere. What is the opposite of loving God's image everywhere? How about words like racism, prejudice, discrimination, as James writes, partiality, judging people by appearance. John writes this, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And by the way, it's not that he's lying about hating his brother, he is lying about loving God. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I remember very early in my ministry here, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going 20 years plus back. So hopefully that's long ago enough that it's safe to tell this story. I remember very early, in fact, I think it was my third week as the senior pastor of the church. I was teaching a Bible study. And in the Bible study, one particular couple, very publicly in front of everybody, made a just clear racial statement and then tried to defend it. Now, when you're in their third week as a pastor, that's the like, okay, what's your name? What's my name? You know, I, I like you. I want you to like me. I'm kind of in that stage where, I, you know, you're just, sort of, you're just sort of moving into the ministry. And here I am at a Bible study where somebody publicly makes a statement like that. And I, <laughs> I, I, was, I stood there and I was like, it's one of those deep breaths where you go, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I took a deep breath, and I called him out on it in front of everybody. And we will continue to call that out. Because racism is sin. It is just sin. And the church needs to call it that. My observation is that there are many people who are very concerned about abortion. Very concerned about right to life. and yet practice low levels of discrimination towards people who are different than them. And I wonder if we can see the hypocrisy of that. To be so concerned about God's image there in the womb and then to be racial towards his image outside the womb? To be discriminatory towards those outside the womb? Are you not being outside the womb in the same way towards those people as the abortionists are towards the image bearers in the womb? Is it not a kind of abortion outside the womb to be a racist? Do we believe that enough as a church to not tolerate the whispering jokes and the condescending attitudes? What about women here? You have an abortion in your past. And here we are talking about it. And you're squirming in your seat. What do we say to you? We say to you that you are sitting next to a whole bunch of liars, cheats, racists, and a whole bunch of other problems. And the church is for sinners. And the gospel is for sinners. The gospel is that we are really, really morally bad people that God has loved through Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Jesus died in the place for our sins, all of them. And that by faith, when I trust in Christ, that grace flows to me and God declares me righteous forever. That's the gospel. And I would say to you, the same forgiveness that is needed by the liars, the cheats, the racists, and all the rest of us is needed. And the same grace can flow 
to you. Maybe you're here today and you're the boyfriend that impregnated the girl. And you urged her to get an abortion and she did. Or you abandoned that mother. What do we say to you? We say the same thing. The gospel is that sin is real and it must be confessed and repented of. But in that gospel is also the grace of God that flows to all those that will call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. And I point you to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're the parent here and your daughter got pregnant and it was going to be such an embarrassment. You said, I'm, I think you should consider this. What do we say to you? We say the same thing. The gospel is for sinners. It begins with repentance. I will tell you this, as I prepared this message and was praying yesterday, I confess one, I have one regret, one sin in this category that came to my mind and I confessed it to God. I would call us all as a church to do the same. Secondly, it's not just sort of repentance and then going into neutral. Like, okay, I'm not, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to coast now. No, that's not what the Bible calls us to. It is personal involvement in loving God's image everywhere. Listen to, there's so many examples of this. This is just one, Psalm 82. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Give justice, okay? That's active, isn't it? Look out for the destitute. Look out for the weak. Why does the Bible over and over do this? First of all, let me make it clear. It's not that we're partial towards poor people, weak people, vulnerable people. God loves all people, including the rich, the powerful, the educated, the high in society, the low in society, and everybody in between. And Jesus just saw everybody kind of through that lens. But as Tim Keller points out, he says, I'm not aware of a single verse in the Bible that urges us to look out for the rights of the rich. Why not? Because presumably the rich are in a position to look out for their own rights. It is those on the, on the, on the margins of society, it is the poor and the weak, they don't have anybody looking out for them. They don't have anybody who can stand up for them or meet their needs. They're not in any position to do that. They are completely vulnerable. The Bible says those are the people to be looking out for. James says pure religion is remembering the widows and the orphans in their distress. Why? Because they have nothing material to offer you. And so when you love them and minister to them, it's a check on your motives. You can know that you're doing it for the right reason. Give justice. Do something. Again, not passively. I'm now non-racist. No, that's not the end of the story. Actively doing something. Like what? Here's some examples from the Bible. 1 Peter 2.17. Honor everyone. Okay, class, let's memorize a verse together. Let's, we're going to memorize it all, like a, a whole thing of it here. Ready? Two words. Close your eyes if you need to. Show that you have memorized it. Honor everyone, okay? Honor everyone. Here's Titus 3. Speak evil of no one and avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. These are attitudes, aren't they? 
attitudes towards people, and by the way, who do we have to show respect and courtesy to? Typically people different from us or people that we're disagreeing with, yet to be courteous. It's a hard attitude, it's a posture towards people that are different than us. How do you talk about communities that are in distress like the city of Gary? Pastor Dexter has told me that it has been hurtful to our fellow members at the Gary campus to hear the way some people in the other campuses talk about the city of Gary. It's hurtful to them. Why would that be hurtful to them? Because they have the same dreams and aspirations that all the rest of us have. They desire better schools, better streets, better government. They, they want the best for their kids. They're raising their families. They're, we're all the same. And when we disparage people's homes and lives and societies, it is hurtful to them. And I would urge us not to do that. Here's another way to say it, as Martin Luther King Jr. did. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. There's a reason that's engraved in stone around our country. Because it was God's truth first. Jesus exemplified it. Courtesy, honor, respect. How about true Christian hospitality? Can we talk about that a moment? What is Christian hospitality? Accepting others as Christ has accepted you. That's a Bible verse. How would an ethnically different person, let's say a purple person, a purple person comes to Bethel Church. What would the experience of a purple person and their purple family be in coming to Bethel Church, one of our campuses? Who here will extend the hand to the purple person? Who here will say, tell me about yourself? Who here will say, sit with us? Who here will say, coffee sometime? Would you? And if not, why not? Would the purple family observe higher levels of openness and friendship amongst the non-purple people than what is being extended to them as a purple person? And what are we going to do about that? And are you willing to be a part of that? It goes well beyond site, on-site church stuff. Do you ever have people over to your house that are different than you? If so, how long has it been? And if not, why not? There's certainly no lacking of different people around here. Why not? Are you loving God's image everywhere? Or just the image that looks like you? How about loving little image bearers? Can we talk about that a moment? What does it mean to have Christian hospitality and to love God's image when it's really little? Today, right now, there is a family in our church, the Vandermeer family, that right now are at Riley Children's Hospital. And they have five kids of their own, and they have uh, signed up for foster care here in Lake County. And recently, they reached out to them and they said, we have a preemie baby 
Um, and would you be willing to take care of this, of this baby, little Silas? And they said, we would. Amen. Okay, we would. This child has lots of health issues. Right now, they're at Riley Children's Hospital. They've been there for, I think, three or four days. They're going to be there a whole other week. Okay? They sent me this picture yesterday. So there they are. Joe doesn't run, Joe, Joe doesn't run IBM, okay? Joe works at Aldi. And he's going to be a week and a half doing this. Five kids back home, farmed out to family and friends, people bringing meals over. They need a few more, by the way. What does it mean to love God's image everywhere? I submit this to you as a picture of what it means. To see that little baby as an image bearer, worth, love, and care. We think about families in our church, personal involvement, foster care, adoption. You know, we have several families in our church that have adopted across ethnicities. And I don't know how you look at that, but I suggest that we should all look at that as a little slice of heaven right in our church. A little picture of what heaven is going to be like. I think we should celebrate it. How about supporting the Women's Center as a way of loving God's image everywhere? Are you ready to be involved in that? Are you ready to be inconvenienced? It's always inconvenient. Like, it's always inconvenient. Are you ready to be inconvenienced in order to love God's image everywhere? I'll give you another example. Some time ago, there was a, a man in our church that his nephew, who was in the military, was back on leave, and he and his nephew were on the back porch, you know, talking and having dinner or whatever. And the nephew says to him, he says, hey, there's a woman in my division who tomorrow is going to have an abortion. And the uncle says, have you talked to her about this? And he says, yeah, I've talked to her, but she's determined. He goes, do you have her phone number? He goes, yeah. He goes, I want to talk to her. So the nephew calls this other military woman, gets her on the phone, hands the phone to her uncle. Her uncle gets on, explains who he is, and says, Listen, I'm offering you right now, no questions asked, on the spot, $1,000 to not have that abortion tomorrow and for you to reconsider this decision. And his wife got on the phone, and they talked for two hours with this woman trying to convince her not to take the life of her child. The next morning comes, and the woman decides not to abort the child. And... to actually keep the child. And little Logan today is five years old. I got this report this week. Five years old, healthy, loves Mickey Mouse, and is expecting a baby brother in a few months. Amen. Here's my question. What beautiful story is God going to crack the door for you to be a part of? And are you willing to push on that cracked door because people, image bearers, and the worth of God make it worth it to love his image no matter where it is? And our church, I mean, we're in the midst of this, and we are doing it imperfectly, 
Like there's so many things you could criticize us for as we're trying to do this and legitimately criticize us for. We are doing it imperfectly. Yes, we do it with missions around the world and praise God for all these people that are doing and agencies and schools and all the things that we're resourcing all over the world. But the world is on our doorstep. It's all around us here. And for us to do this, the culture of our church has to be comfortable with some of the tensions and the messiness that loving people who are different create. And I'm challenging us as a church to be stretchy in our love and to apply that love in practical ways to all of the image bearers around us. And I'm here to tell you, this is not easy. It is not going to be easy. It is going to be occasionally messy. We're going to misstep at times. But it's worth it. So I have a dream too. I have a dream. That Bethel Church will be more and more a little slice of heaven on earth where the diversities are less tensions and more celebrations as we love God's image everywhere. Amen.